Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. This week on Seizing Life, in honor of International Epilepsy Day on February 14th, we speak with Juliana Shinnick, whose personal experience with epilepsy inspired her to make a difference in the lives of those with epilepsy in East Africa. Since 2014, Juliana has regularly traveled to Tanzania, where she's been part of a number of projects aimed at improving the lives of those with epilepsy in the Mahenge region. She's here today to provide insight to what life is like for those with epilepsy in Tanzania and discuss what is being done to improve care, reduce stigma, and provide opportunity for those diagnosed in Mahenge. Juliana, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I have been looking forward to this conversation um, because I have a personal vested interest in Tanzania. I visited Tanzania also shortly after college and absolutely fell in love with the, the country, the community, the culture, some of the kindest warm-hearted people I have ever met. So I'm fascinated to hear you started working with epilepsy patients in Tanzania in 2014, but you also have a very personal connection to epilepsy. I'm wondering how you got involved with um, the epilepsy community in Tanzania and how your personal story sort of drove your interest in that region of the world. Yeah. Um... I do have a very personal connection to epilepsy. I have epilepsy. I had temporal lobe seizures from the time I was a very small kid, um, kind of as long as I can remember. And I tried, you know, probably like a lot of people, I tried a ton of different medications, the low glycemic diet. Nothing was really working for my seizures. Um, so I was having like two or three seizures a week, kind of, yeah, all all through my childhood, all through my teenage years. And um, when I was in my freshman year of college, I decided to have um, epilepsy surgery. So I had a, a right temporal lobe resection after my freshman year in college. And um, I mean, it completely, completely changed things for me. I went to Mass General, I had my, had my surgery. I woke up and I haven't had any seizures since then. Um, and that was 10 years ago. Amazing. Um, I love those so stories. They're my favorite. I, I sort of felt like after my surgery, it was like, you know, when you go to the eye doctor and they like put the little lenses down and they're like, is that better? And you're like, oh my gosh, I can see all the little like individual leaves, you know, like what you don't realize that you aren't seeing well, but then like, they're like, is this better? And you're like, wow, I can see so clearly. Like that's sort of how I felt except for like, my whole entire consciousness, like after I woke up from surgery. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard it explained that way before, but that is absolutely fascinating and such an, uh, a great way for those of us who do not have seizures to or sort of understand. So you have the surgery, it, you wake up a, a brand with a brand new brain and you're in college. When do you first learn about this particular uh, community in Tanzania? So I was, I think, if my memory serves me right, it was a few years later, I was a junior now in college. And I was still like, you know, I think still riding a pretty, 
pretty serious high from the surgery. Um, and I, I was doing a project for, for a sociology class about human rights and epilepsy. This one community kept coming up in my research and it was the town of Mahenge. It's this little community tucked in the, in the Wapagoro mountains in central Tanzania. And, you know, the reason that it was so well studied was this, this woman named Louise Jillicall, this neurologist had been there in the sixties and realized that there was this huge, huge proportion of people there that were having epilepsy. And she ended up um, establishing an epilepsy clinic there. And so there's been a lot of like, you know, research about, about that community. And, you know, the more I read, the more I was just sort of like captivated by this place because here I was kind of like so grateful and so like privileged really to have had this surgery. And, you know, and I realized that I had been kind of, you know, born in the right place at the right time. Like I could go to Boston and have this, you know, super high tech imagery and like super specialized doctors and, you know, everything I could possibly need to treat my epilepsy. And there, there's like one tiny clinic with one doctor and a team of nurses that are, you know, spread thin to try and help people who are really like not only struggling with epilepsy, but also with like real, real social stigma surrounding epilepsy. So I kind of, I just got kind of sucked into this thing. I kept reading about it and and finally, I decided to email Dr. Jillicall. So I emailed her and she didn't respond. So I was like, uh, like, I guess, I guess that ship sailed, you know? And then uh, and I finally saw her, her phone number on another thing. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to give it a shot. So I give, give her a call. She picks up the phone and she's like, oh, hi. Like, yeah. Like, you read about Mahenge? Yeah, let's talk about Mahenge. She like chats my ear off for like an hour. And... And I was like, yeah, I like, I did email you. And she's like, I'm 75. I don't do email. Like <laughs> there was no way I was going to respond to your email, but like, I'd love to talk to you. And, um, and so we kind of kept talking and eventually she said, you know, you should really, you should really go to Mahenge. Like, I think that you should like, you should work with the clinic there. Let's, let's get you over there. And so after my senior year of college, I applied for the Davis Projects for Peace Fellowship, which is, um, which is a $10,000 grant. And it's from um, this woman named Catherine Davis. She had a large fortune. And when she turned 100, she decided to dedicate it to 100 Projects for Peace. And so she she gave out her kind of her entire fortune to like young idealistic people with weird ideas. And, um, and so I wrote up a grant like talking about helping people with epilepsy find jobs and um, find like a place in their community in Mahenge. And, uh, and I got the grant, and so I flew to Dar es Salaam after I graduated college, and um, and took the 15-hour drive up to the mountains into to Mahenge, and that's that's how I ended up there. That's absolutely incredible how these two worlds sort of converged for you. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Did you know that one in 26 Americans will develop epilepsy in their lifetime? For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn more about our mission to end epilepsy at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. You sort of mentioned a little bit the stigma, but what is, you know, day-to-day -day life 
like for people with epilepsy in this region of Tanzania? Yeah. So first off, there's so many more people with, with epilepsy in Mahenge than there are here, you know. When I'm I stop you there for a minute. Maybe... I'm sorry, because I'm just, I'm so curious, and I have to imagine that everyone listening is, you're talking about such a significant more amount of people in this region of Tanzania that have epilepsy than, you know, the average statistics in the United States. Why is there such this high density of epilepsy patients in this one area? Yeah, so so we think it's about 10 times greater. It's still hard to know with statistics because it's, you know, hard to reach people in the same ways that we survey people here. But when I first went there, there we weren't really sure at all why there were so many people with epilepsy. It was kind of a mystery. And at that time, they thought maybe vitamin B deficiency. They thought all of these people, all these different places have had some level of displacement over time. Maybe that has something to do with it. They thought maybe it was long lasting effects from measles. Like there were all of these different theories. And in 2017, a paper came out in Science that kind of brought us the closest to understanding why there's so much epilepsy um, that we've gotten. So still not 100% sure, but we really think it has to do with, um, with onchocerciasis, which is river blindness. So, so what happens is there's these little filarial worms um, in the rivers and they then um, people get infected with these worms um, and there's a little tiny protein on the filarial worms that looks a lot like a protein that's both in our neurons and in our muscles and so they think what's happening is when people's immune systems are trying to fight off river blindness this sort of friendly fire and end up attacking their own brains which results in seizures that gives us a little bit more to work with than what we had to work with, you know, even seven or eight years ago. Now we can start targeting epilepsy like upstream, not just treating the epilepsy once people get it, but also trying to prevent river blindness infections. Absolutely. That is promising that this paper came out and, and hopefully, fingers crossed, there can be more and better treatments. So sorry, I interrupted you. Let's go back to the original question about what what life is like. You like I said you mentioned the stigma. What what does daily life look like for epilepsy patients in this region of Tanzania? So, a paper came out about in 2010 where um Dr. Louise went went to Tanzania and she speaks really beautiful Swahili. So she got you know, she got a group of people together and started just asking them about, you know, about epilepsy and their beliefs about epilepsy. And she found out that 65% of people in Mahenge thought that people with epilepsy weren't fit to work or to go to school. So it's a really, you know, people really kind of people with epilepsy form their own kind of class there where, where they're excluded from, you know, being productive members of society, really. And kids from a really young age who have epilepsy just don't see themselves as having any kind of future because they're often kicked out of school and they're often, you know, they're often excluded from the workforce because nobody will hire with somebody with epilepsy. They think people with epilepsy aren't capable of working. They're not good workers. That's absolutely heartbreaking to hear. Is it, is the stigma based in some type of culture? What do they attribute 
the seizures too. Like I know in Latin and parts of South America, there is this idea that people with epilepsy are possessed or things like that. Is it right. something, is it something similar culturally? Yeah. I mean, I think historically it was definitely, definitely a belief that maybe ancestral spirits or spirits in general, like something was cursing the community that was, you know, resulting in these really scary seizures that they couldn't explain. And, you know, over time now, I don't think that's really, you know, when you talk to most people in Mahenge, they're like, no, it's a, you know, people go to the clinic, they get medicines. It's a, it's a medical condition, but you know, you can't wipe away that sort of history or that stigma over, you know, just a generation or two. I think like still somewhere tucked in the, you know, the DNA of the village is this idea that people were, you know, were cursed. And then I think just having so many people with epilepsy is like also, it makes it so that, yeah, they form their own sort of like class of people, you know, that are, that are more systemically sort of discriminated against. Now, it's incredible that there is this clinic there. However, I have to imagine that it does not compare with the epilepsy monitoring units that we see in, you know, a class four uh, epilepsy center hospital in the United States. What does epilepsy care look like? Are there medications available? You know, how how is the community, how are the neurologists there? How are they treating epilepsy? Yeah, so right now there's um, a doctor and a nurse that run the clinic, Dr. Buana and Grace Kabuti, and they're like, they're incredible. Like they, you know, run around on their motorcycle, like delivering medications, like deep into the bush. Like they're so, so dedicated to the people with epilepsy. But they really don't have, you know, like you say, they don't have the support and the like infrastructure that we do here to provide that care. And they have, um, they have phenobarbital and they have Dilantin um, are the two medications that they have at the clinic. Just, just those two. Just those two. And like, as any of us who have taken any of those medications know, they're not going to be the best for everybody. And that's like, that's the options they have. A few years ago, we were able to partner with a, an organization called the Roe Foundation to get Lamictal um, or Levetiracetam because it's the generic, but um, we were able to get that medication to the clinic as well, which is really exciting, especially for, for pregnant people with epilepsy. Um, but I mean, yeah, there's, there's, you know, nowhere near the medication kind of options. And then you know, in terms of diagnostically, like I couldn't find any statistics about Tanzania, but in Uganda, which is right next door, there are like 15 MRI machines in the entire country. And like, I live right down the street from Penn Medicine, like that's in my backyard and there are 12 MRI machines at Penn Medicine. So it's like, you know, I have a few patients in Mahenge that have had MRIs, but they've had to travel 15 hours by car to, to Dar es Salaam. And that's a huge amount of money that most people don't have. And then even the medications that they do have, like one of the real challenges is sometimes there'll be shortages of, of those medications. Um, cause they come from, they come from the government. It's a government run healthcare system. And so they'll get a certain amount of phenobarbital from the world health organization. It goes to Dar es Salaam. It gets distributed throughout the country, but somewhere along the way, Sometimes there's floods, sometimes there's a, you know, greedy pharmacist who decides he's going to divert it to 
his own local pharmacy, like usually about once a year, I end up getting WhatsApp messages that are like, we don't have any phenobarbital, like it's all gone for the next three weeks, which is really awful for people who are already on the medication. And then, you know, they're having breakthrough seizures because they can't get it for a period of weeks. Well, and not even just breakthrough seizures. I'm thinking of like going cold turkey off of some of these medications is right, dangerous exactly. in and of itself, especially depending on what kind of dose the people are on. I mean, that's that's sort of terrifying, you know, yet, you know, breakthrough seizures, but also just having to stop and not be able to titrate down is really, really scary. So tell me about the projects and initiatives that you worked on and continue to work on personally in Mahenge. Way back in 2014, I didn't realize how much of like the center of everything the river is like, cause you know, water is really scarce there. And, you know, whether it's the elephants going to the river to get their water or the people going to the river to get their water, like everybody depends on this river to, to get what they need. And I was like, you know, asking people what they, you know, what do you know about epilepsy? And like, what do you think people, people with epilepsy need here, you know? And, um, and multiple people were like, brought to my attention that there had been a few deaths the year before from people who were women who were going to the river to get their water and they had fallen in the water because they had seizures. But I thought, you know, the other issue is that people in the community don't think that people with epilepsy can work. So like, what if we had them build a water tank close to the center of town so that people wouldn't have to go to the river to get water? And then that would be a useful, you know, amenity for the entire town. And maybe they would see that people with epilepsy could work and could make something happen. So I started talking to the doctor and the nurses. I was like, I think we should like hire a bunch of people with epilepsy to build a water tank, like close to the clinic. And the next morning I wake up and I have this little balcony in my like, my little, my little room at the, at the seminary. And I'm like, really sleepy. I'm not much of a morning person. So I walk out, I'm like about to get some coffee. And there's like a line of people with epilepsy, like all just like through the courtyard. They're like, we heard you're trying to build a water tank. Like we're ready to work. When do we start? And That's amazing. Um, and so we hired a bunch of people to build this, this water tank. And I remember like when I saw that the tank all finished and like, people from all over the village like lined up with their buckets on their head like ready to get their water and they're like oh who who built this like this is awesome and you know you could hear people being like yeah it's it's the like people with kafafa it's the people with epilepsy like this white lady hired them to build it you know <laughs> and and it was like you know it was great to hear this sort of like hearsay in real time of like yeah people with epilepsy they like built this thing that's really useful for you and like they can do that work you know that's incredible. I love that story so much. Not only helping the community and preventing future deaths, but showing the community that that they can, the people with epilepsy can, will, and want to work. Have you noticed a difference in, you know, you talked to the first time you went was in 2014. I know that you haven't been able to go back since COVID, but, you know, over the course of these years, have you been able to sense, I know that, like you said, this is going to take generations to work through this stigma, but have you at least seen progress in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I think I have. Like, 
Another project that I have worked on is giving people vocational scholarships and educational scholarships because so many people with epilepsy get kicked out of school at a really young age. And if they can, you know, go back and continue an education, most of them will if they're given the money. But if you have, you know, what I hear over and over again from people is like, I have five siblings, my parents couldn't afford to send all of us to school. And, you know, the kid with epilepsy is going to be the one that's that's left behind. And so, you know, if we can fund people to go back to school or to get a vocational degree, like, um, that's been one of my big, my big goals. And the first vocational program we started was um, tailoring, because there, you know, any skirt or dress or, you know, tux or whatever you're going to get made is has to be made right in the community. So that was the first the first program that we started. And had a few tailors graduate from it. And, um, you know, they got, we gave them their own sewing machines. They both were open to, were able to open their own, their own businesses from their homes. And then I went back about a year later and I was like, I had some more funding. It's like, let's, let's start a carpentry program. And I remember going to the carpentry teacher and he was like, he's like, yeah, no, I, what are you talking about? Like people with epilepsy can't work. And I said, have you run into like Margaret down at, you know, down by this street. And he was like, Oh, yeah, like, she makes really great dresses. Like my wife really likes her stuff. And I was like, Oh, yeah, like she was part of our program last year. And like, you know, he's like, Oh, that was a good product. And so he said, he was like, Okay, I guess I could, you know, I guess I could do it. If you're, if you, uh, you know, if you're funding these people to, <laughs> to learn carpentry, like, I'll give it a shot, you can kind of see the domino effect of like, the first one was hard. The second one was less hard because it was there was already something to go go by, you know. I see people taking really, you know, um, sort of tangible examples and and realizing that maybe that they were kind of wrong about what they thought, you know. I love it so much. I know that you've not been able to travel back for obvious reasons over the last couple of years. Um, and I imagine if you're not able to get back that other volunteers and people aren't able to travel in as well. How is the community doing? Are they, are they still able to thrive and, and get, or even just, you know, status quo, get treatments and medicines? So in terms of COVID in general, I mean, I think they're struggling in that, um, you know, there's such inequality with the way that vaccines have been distributed and they don't really... They don't have the refrigeration that they need for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. So I did receive word that like a month ago, they got a big shipment of Johnson & Johnson vaccines. So I'm really grateful for that. And so far, I think they've been relatively okay, but I do I do worry for them. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, supply chain, it's usually around this time of the year in the rainy season that the drugs start getting backed up. And when there are shortages, it's usually during the rainy season. So, I mean, I really worry in terms of like, you know, if we can't get our Amazon supply, you know, we can't get two day delivery on Amazon. I'm guessing that it's the supply chain is going to be a problem for them as well. We have been like doing a lot of WhatsApping, a lot of chatting about, you know, applying to grants and that kind of thing. So like, just kind of like trying to plan for the next thing, but it's, uh, it's definitely like, you know, I do, I do worry for them. Now, when life settles into whatever our new normal is, what are your goals? What do you hope for, for the, uh, for the epilepsy patients in Mahenge? And, you know, 
what do they need most? They need both the very basics. They need a constant supply of medication um, and they need to have you know, greater access to different medications. I think so much of the disease there is the social aspect of it and, you know, being seen as an outsider, as somebody who's not going to work, not going to be productive. And, you know, seizures are one thing, but like really being so held back from living your life is, is another. And so I'm really hoping to continue supporting people to go back to school, um, to get jobs and, you know, to live productive lives once they get their seizures under control too. And I mean, our students are really thriving, you know, like there's this one student, Winfrieda, that we've been supporting for a long time. She got kicked out of elementary school when she had epilepsy and we funded her to go back to, to a private high school and she totally killed it. Like she did great. She did, got amazing grades and she wants to apply to nursing school now, um, which is really, really exciting. Is that like the best feeling in the world to know that like you had a hand in completely changing the trajectory of this young woman's life? I mean, that's just incredible. I love the work that you're doing there and thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Juliana, for your experience and insights. Those of us who have been touched by epilepsy know that there are no borders when it comes to seizures. Epilepsy can develop in anyone, at any age, anywhere in the world. An estimated 65 million people worldwide currently live with epilepsy. Unfortunately, one third of those people do not respond to current medications. And as Juliana related, those in developing countries often encounter multiple challenges, from accessing medications to deep-seated stigma that impacts educational and employment opportunities. For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has understood the need to find a cure for epilepsy and has been dedicated to funding research that will lead us to those cures. We ask you to join us by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Through research, there is hope. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual specific health situation.